0: Here we are on this uh, calm summer evening with the occasional showers. Lord knows we need the rain. A kind of peacefulness seems to be in the air outside as I came here, really enjoying that, and a peacefulness here in the room as you all are um, doing your practice. I know you're not all feeling full of peace all the time, don't worry. (laughs) <laughs> but there's still this energy of um, mindfulness and concentration which even if the content of what's happening isn't peaceful, that the energy of mindfulness and concentration has a certain quality of peace to it that we can feel when we come in the hall and maybe you can sometimes. Um, that's very powerful and really beautiful. So thank you for your contributing to that each and every one of you i was just reading uh about an hour ago a book called seeds for a boundless life by uh, zen priest um, blanche hartman she died this year it wasn't tragic she was in her 80s i think um but i just found a paragraph i liked This question comes up again and again in Zen. What is it? Please investigate it. What is it? What is it you're doing here? I don't ask you to look for words for it. Words are secondary. I want you to find the feel of it. I want you to find the fire of it. I want you to touch the source of your life force, to feel the joy and love that come from living from the source of your being. This is your refuge, to throw yourself completely into the aliveness of your life. That's what we're doing here. We're throwing ourselves completely into the aliveness of our lives. A big part of that aliveness is uh, thoughts, thinking thoughts, and uh, emotions, feeling. And so tonight I want to talk a little bit about how we um, can connect with these energies of thinking and feeling um, in a way that uh, frees the mind rather than um, ensnares it. Because often with thoughts and emotions, um, what happens is we get ensnared, entangled, um, bound up. And with practice, we can learn how to be with these energies, these experiences of the liveness of our lives, uh, with spaciousness and peace. To start, I want to read um, some meditation hints from the Colorado Division of Wildlife. (laughs) A few... um, (laughs) A couple of years ago, I read this, so you were here a couple of years ago have heard it, but I love it so much we're going to give it a rerun. And a woman named Kim Boykin, she uh, was staying at, in the Rocky Mountain National Park, and she picked up a pamphlet about what to do when you live in bear country. And she thought, you know, the, the pamphlet is what, what do you do if you meet a bear? And she thought it sounded a lot like meditation instruction, so she substituted the word thought for bear. And here are the helpful (laughs) hints from the Colorado Division of Wildlife. Colorado has been home to thoughts since the earliest ancestors evolved in North America. (laughs) Today, increasing numbers of people routinely live and play in thought country. Learning about thoughts and being aware of their habits will help you fully appreciate these unique animals and the (laughs) habitat in which they live. What to do if you meet a thought. There are no definite rules what to do if you meet a thought. Thought attacks are rare compared to the number of close encounters. (laughs) However, if you do meet a thought before it is time to leave the area, here are some suggestions. Remember, every situation is different with respect to the thought, the terrain, the people, and their activity. First, stay calm. If you see a thought and it hasn't seen you, (laughs) calmly leave the area. (laughs) Stop. Back away slowly while (laughs) facing the thought. Give the thought plenty of room to escape. Wild thoughts rarely attack people unless they feel threatened or provoked. Speak softly. This may reassure the thought that no harm is meant to it. (laughs) If a thought stands upright or moves closer, it may be trying to detect smells in the air. This isn't a sign of aggression. Once a thought identifies you, it may leave the area or try to intimidate you (laughs) by charging to within a few feet before it withdraws. Don't run or make any sudden movements. Running is likely to prompt the thought to give chase, and you can't outrun a thought. (laughs) If you have any potentially life-threatening situations with a thought or an injury occurs, please contact the retreat support people. (laughs) So it's kind of interesting. We could see thoughts as wild animals that we have to respect, And that, um, kind of the wisdom in there is basically, if you leave thoughts alone, um, they'll leave you alone. (laughs) Same with bears, right? If you get involved with thoughts, then we start to have a lot of problems. We start out meditating, usually by assuming we have to get rid of thoughts. That's a pretty common assumption. Um, Certain kinds of meditation do focus on that. Concentration meditations like mantras or using the breath as a concentration object do, um, the goal really is to suppress thought, to kind of keep it out. (laughs) It's trying to stay on your one object. But with mindfulness meditation, that is not the goal. Yes, in mindfulness meditation, we do use an anchor and a breath as a form of um, as a technique to develop concentration but we don't intend to develop it to the extent of excluding all the aliveness of our lives and so when thoughts arise the idea isn't to get rid of them but to understand them so we want to understand how we get entangled in a thought how we can become free of that entanglement We want to learn how to make thoughts our friends. Have you ever thought about what is a thought? I mean, it's like a huge part of our lives. I think it should be in the kindergarten curriculum. Like, what is a thought, and how do you work with them? Because it's such a huge part of our lives, and yet we, we understand often so little about thought. And as we sit here day after day and we have lots of experience with thinking, we can start to understand a lot about thought. We can understand perhaps our particular tendencies with thought. We can understand how much power a thought has when we're not aware of it and how much power it has when we are. We start to see that thoughts essentially are very um, ephemeral but our, our getting involved with them uh, uh, strengthens them and makes them dense and opaque and um, keeps us bound up um, in them or in living in this world of thought. So one of the challenges with thought is that we often identify with thought. And this word identify in Buddhism means that we get involved, we um, get lost, we believe them, um, we take them personally, all of that is identifying with the thought. In reality, thought is an event that arises out of certain conditions and passes away, and it's, it's conditioned. Something happens to make a thought arise, and then thing, it goes away, it goes on. Um, but uh, we tend to solidify them through identification, through involvement with them. I'll give you an example. Many years ago when I was on a retreat, um, I went through a period where I had lots of judging thoughts. Of um, at, at this point, it was of other yogis. <laughs> I've done plenty of joking, judging of myself. But I was just judging other yogis. And it seemed like every time, especially when I was out in, out in the hall moving around or in the dining room, um, but a lot, uh, I kept having these thoughts about judging yogis. So I'd be like oh, um, wow, um, look how much food they take. <laughs> Don't they know on retreat you should eat less? Or look at how they walk. Wow, you're supposed to walk softer than that. <laughs> look at how they're dressed. They think they're super yogi. You know. And it went on. <laughs> it went on and on and on. And um, I felt pretty bad about it. I was, I was pretty traumatized by my, my own mind, you could say. <laughs> And so I went in to see my teacher, and um, so I I spent a little time complaining about what was going on, about what a bad yogi I was, what a horrible person I was, um, you know, judging thoughts. Hmm. So he listens for a while, and then he says, it's just a thought. I was like, oh. (laughs) It was like... I still remember that was like thirty years ago, and it still like was a life-transforming moment. It was like, oh, it's just a thought, you know. So then I was practicing, and I'd notice a judging thought would arise, and be like, oh, it's a judging thought, and that was the end of the story. So before all the other first part was all I was identifying with that thought, I was believing them, and I was saying they were personal. They said something about who I was and um, what kind of person I was, and I was really involved with them, right? The second one was like, oh, okay, it's just a thought. And when you think about it, the first one's a lot of suffering. And, um, well, when you think about it, wars start that way. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's, it can be intense. It can be um, destructive, right, when, when we're really lost in thoughts of judging other people. But the second way, is there really a problem? Is there a problem? It's just a thought. It's just an event. It's just something that happened, and and it comes and goes. So we're we're cultivating this ability to understand this about thoughts, to understand how they work. And this moment um, that we wake up out of thinking, this is our big um, moment, our wonderful moment, that we get to start to understand. Because when we're lost in thought, we... We don't develop much understanding because we're lost, right? We're not, we're not aware. But that wake-up moment when we're aware, we can um, learn a lot. It's a moment to be deeply appreciated. It's a beautiful moment. So one thing we can practice, as I was talking um, the other day in the Q&A, is let the thought go. When we cultivate the ability to let the thought go, we're cultivating the ability to not identify with it. We're cultivating non-identification. So just unhook. We're cultivating. Every moment that we can unhook from a thought and let it go, we're cultivating freedom. We're not bound to the tyranny of our minds. Now. I know it's easier said than done, right? I mean, there are some thoughts it's easy. They just kind of, they're not so sticky. They arise. They're kind of housekeeping. I call them housekeeping thoughts. You know, there's something you heard, kind of, mm, what's for lunch? Uh, you know, there's housekeeping thoughts. Then there's other thoughts. You start to learn this, too, that thoughts have different textures. So there's other thoughts that are, um, I call them sticky. You know, you let it go, it, it wants you to come back. Or you try to let it go and it's like, no, not yet. <laughs> and you, you know, you get there's a lot of identification. Those thoughts usually have some emotion um, feeding them, and I'll be talking about emotions a little later. But it can be helpful to, to name the emotion, to know what the emotion is, and to actually attend to the emotion because that's what's really wanting your, your energy. And then some thoughts are pleasant, and you might be thinking, well, why would I let a pleasant thought go? Right? It's much more interesting, the breath. It's like, huh, pleasant fantasy, the breath. Hmm, (laughs) let me think here. (laughs) No-brainer. Pleasant thought. (laughs) So, So why would we do that? Why would we let go of a pleasant thought and come back to the breath? If you just want comfort now, if that's what you're looking for, go with the pleasant thought. Entertain yourself. But if you want to learn about um, bondage and freedom, if you want to learn um, about freeing yourself from the tyranny of your mind, then you need to practice letting that go too, the pleasant thoughts go too. It's kind of a delayed gratification thing. You know, if you go with the pleasant fantasy now, you're getting the gratification now. The delayed gratification is this happiness that's deeper than pleasure, the peace that's deep deeper than pleasure, the freedom of not being basically bossed around by our own minds, our own hearts. So that pull, to the pleasant thought, that pull to stay in it, that's that's bondage. And when we can practice letting it go, it's actually practicing inner strength. It's empowering. It's saying that I can um, make choices that lead to my deepest happiness. I don't have to be dominated by the whims of my mind. And if we cultivate identification with the pleasant thoughts we're going to get it with the unpleasant thoughts too, because you're cultivating it so so you can't just unhook from the unpleasant ones and 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 cultivate um, attachment to the pleasant ones it doesn't It doesn't work That said, sometimes the mind will just um don't take. Don't take this to mean that you should never get engaged in a pleasant thought. It's going to happen. Um, I think the mind sometimes needs little vacations, and that's how it gets a vacation. It's like, oh, you know, it's had enough with being here, with being present, with present-time reality. It's like, get me out of here, and it will take care of you Mm -hmm. (laughs) by going into some kind of, um, you know, pleasant thought for a while. It's okay. Okay. You know, you wake up, and then you have that choice again. At a certain point, we we start to get a little bored of our stories. Um, it's like kind of like, oh, I've done that one enough times, maybe. And uh, we, then it starts to get easier to kind of let them go. We find that the stories start to um, feel like a distraction from some kind of immediate connection with reality that becomes more compelling for us so that wake up moment what happens to the thought when you wake up that's a whole other exploration I'm talking about letting it go but what happens to it sometimes it just goes right it's gone you wake up and it's like all right that waking up moment kind of, you could say, dispels it or, or, or dissolves with that with awareness. Sometimes a thought just dissolves with awareness. Sometimes people find it helpful to use a tool called mental noting. And so when you have that wake up moment, sometimes you can make this note thinking. I find that sometimes that um, kind of makes it clearer. It makes the moment crisper. And it's not like thinking. It's not like thinking with a baseball bat. (laughs) It's just, oh, thinking. And um, if that's helpful for you, you can use that. Or some people find if there's a thought, a certain thought pattern that goes on a lot, that to specifically label it helps with the mindfulness. So judging. You know, oh, judging. Or oh, remembering. Planning, remembering, planning are huge, very common. Rehearsing, very common, right? Rehearsing what you can tell your friends when you leave here. <laughs> it's kind of like the narrator. Oh, now this is happening to me. You know, there's all kinds of. I call one kind of thinking the sportscaster. It's like an announcer, like, oh, now she's doing this and now she's doing that. And, um, there's all these layers, aren't there? But you can name them, oh, the sportscaster, oh, rehearsing. And the idea isn't to get rid of them again. It's just to help you wake up a little bit earlier as you become more familiar with with where your mind tends to go. So without awareness, um, we automatically believe our thoughts and act out of them. With awareness, we start to have some choice about, um, first, whether we believe our thoughts. It's good to have choice around that. And um, about what thoughts are worth thinking about. On retreat, we pretty much treat all thoughts as equal. We're not interested in the content so much, we're interested in thought as a phenomena, as a as a, um, mental event. But what we see as we learn to unhook, we have more space in our daily lives. We can, you know, find ourselves thinking and can say, well, is this a helpful, is this helpful? Some kind of thinking is helpful, right? Planning things, creativity, um, so you say, oh, yeah, that, okay, this is helpful. I'm going to think about it. Or we might wake up from a thought pattern in our daily life and go, you know what, Ah, oh, that's not helpful. I don't think I'm going to keep my energy and attention there. So one of the main things I've found um, for me over the years with thought is that I have more choice about what I think about. I don't have any choice about what thoughts come up. That That's just Donut's thing. But when I wake up, I have more choice of like, hmm, you know what? That's a suffering stream of thought. I don't think I'm going to think about it. And I, and I have more capacity then to choose not to. One of my thought rules is not to believe anything that my mind says after 8 p.m., uh, Because I know my mind. I don't do well. I'm not an evening person. I'm a morning person. So if I start thinking about a problem or trying to resolve something in the evening, I tend to have more um, depressing thoughts or hopeless thoughts or unhelpful thoughts. So I just decided a blanket rule. I'm just not going to believe my mind after 8 p.m. is very useful for me. (laughs) And if you're a morning person, maybe your rule should just be not to believe your mind before 10 a.m. And so, if I something comes up at night, I'm, my mind starts wanting to think about it. Saying, no, "Well, not now. Tomorrow morning, we can think about this." <laughs> we also find with meditating that um, as we become more open, we actually um, we may find that we're surprised by our own thoughts because we start to censor them less. I know that at certain periods in my practice, um, I've been kind of um, shocked and horrified at the thoughts that I have in my mind. You know, it's like, wow, you thought that? Um, And if I take it personally, then I'm really in trouble, right? But most of the time, I'm just like, wow, that was intense. Kind of um, playful with these like... um, well, like the judging thoughts, right? I did at first get involved with them, and the afterwards, now I still have judging thoughts sometimes. I don't tend to believe them as much, um, but sometimes I'll just go, "Oh, wow, that was pretty intense," or, or um, just kind of um, actually enjoy them in a certain way. I don't. It's not like liking them, but it's kind of like, "Wow, that was pretty creative." <laughs> <laughs> When I don't feel dominated or um, 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 uh, uh, oppressed by them, then I can just enjoy the energy. And you can um, another way you can play with thoughts is you can um, um, count your thoughts, so I would do things like count how many judging thoughts I had in a sitting. You could try that, you know It's just a way to loosen it up a little bit. So, if you have a certain thought pattern that comes a lot, you can count it, or you could um, figure out what your top four are, and you can number them. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's number two again. <laughs> um, all of that loosens the identification and the attachment, and helps um, them to become more transparent and and uh, lighter. So much to say, I'm not going through it all. The other thing that we see with um, our thoughts, and uh, Alex talked a little bit about this last night, we see how we create uh, virtual realities or imaginary worlds with our thoughts and then we inhabit them. And then what we start to see is that how our beliefs about something or someone or a situation creates um, how we see them, creates the reality. Um, For example, some of you probably have a VR by now, Vipassana Romance. (laughs) We call them affectionately VRs. So you have your VR, and um, you see your VR around the center, and um, they're perfect. (laughs) Look at how they walk, such care. <laughs> Look at that brilliant question they asked in the hall. Super intelligent. What beauty, you know. And so the mind. Now that the mind has decided that this person is is your um, dream, um, it filters. That that's what you see. That's what we see. So we. Cre- this is how we create reality. All the other information is ignored. Like about how they coughed through the sitting room. I don't know what it would be, but it, but you know anything that doesn't fit how we want to see things, we the mind does ignores it. It um, doesn't like that dissonance. It's kind of like falling in love. Falling in love is like a. <laughs> <laughs> like delusion for a number of months, you know, <laughs> hormones and delusion. And um, <laughs> because all you see is like how great this person is, right? And then, and then, you know, you got to do a little reality check at some point, you know, three months, six months, a year, whenever it happens for you. Um, and then suddenly you're like, oh, I kind of miss the way they chew their food. Um, <laughs> But it's good to know this about the mind, because then you start to be like, oh, I'm not sure, you know, are you just seeing one version of reality? And then you might have your VV by now, Vipassana Vendetta. That's, <laughs> that's a person you do not like. They can't do anything right. They stomp around the hall, they slam their door, they eat too fast. They cough all the way through the sitting. <laughs> and again, it's all, it's all projection filtered, made up reality, right? It's not, um, you know, and after the retreat, you'll get to check out your VR and your VV. And it's, and it's often very interesting. You can often be quite surprised. It's actually a really good um, lesson in how we make up reality. So it's good when we get into long stories in the mind to remember that we're making it all up. And just remind yourselves like, oh yeah, I made, it. I made that all up, interesting. And then you can hold it more lightly. And there may be some useful kernels of truth and then you take those. But there may be a lot of unuseful information too and you, and you learn to let that go. Then there's the deep stories and the deep beliefs that um, often come out of our early conditioning. A real common belief with yogis is, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I need to be perfect. What different um, strains of that. And so again, then we start to see only information that confirms that we're not good enough. And we create that reality over and over again. So let's say we have that story, I'm not good enough. Um, So we're sitting, and 25 minutes into the sitting, the pain's so strong we have to move. And then we move, and then we're like, "Ah, look, I couldn't even make it through a 45-minute sit. I'm not good enough at this. Or um, we're lost in thought for five minutes. We wake up, and we're like, "Ah, look at that. Look at everybody else around me. They're all so quiet. I'm sure that, like, they wouldn't get lost for five minutes. (laughs) And so 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 we, we keep seeing what confirms, right? That story and it gets entrenched. We miss the fact that we actually made it here. That we've made it through two days. Now we're still here. We haven't run down the driveway screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> uh, you know, we've held it together basically. <laughs> You know so we so so we miss all the information that doesn't confirm our story, and it's good to know this. it's good to start seeing this because it makes room in the mind for maybe just the stories to change a little bit, maybe for there to be freedom from that story or at least an updated story. So thoughts are related to emotions. In Buddhism, um, sometimes emotion is just considered denser thought. And you can feel that when, thoughts, when, when there's an emotion present, thoughts are much more um, opaque. There's much more identification. They're stickier. We believe them more. I mean, it's fascinating what we'll believe when we're in the grips of an emotion, right? Right? It's shocking what we'll believe when we're in the grips of an emotion. So a huge part of practice then is this learning how to um, hold emotions and how to be a friend to ourselves, no matter what is happening, no matter what we're feeling. So not to, you could say, not to abandon ourselves. Learn how to stay, how to sit and stay. Um, with ourselves and our experience. Now, when I talk about emotions, there's always the risk that people who are not having a lot of emotion think, oh, I should be feeling a lot. Um, be careful that word should in your practice. Um, we sit up here and talk about a, a number of things, and it might not always apply to you. Sometimes we're just calm. Sometimes meditation, the, the strongest... Um, um mind state is calm so if that's true what's calm like you get to uh connect directly with that so don't worry you don't have to go digging up some good emotions so the way that we usually deal with emotions when they arise is um two extremes. One extreme, we we drown in them, we get lost in them, we lose all perspective, We, we get, um, the mind gets into stories that are very filtered, um, by that emotional experience. And we create these worlds and universes that we inhabit and believe are true. The other extreme sometimes is that we, um, we try to repress emotion. We try not to feel. We will do anything not to feel. Where's my iPhone? You know, where? Where's a distraction? Um, we kind of run from from our own hearts. That doesn't work so well either because um, it might work temporarily, but but it doesn't lead to peace. Anything that we're running from. Um, leaves us with a a sense of edginess, a sense of um, fear. And so the way to peace is to actually make friends with the whole catastrophe, with all of it. And so the middle path of mindful awareness is turning towards the experience... Um, with wisdom and compassion and presence. So turning towards our emotions and trying to understand, um, again, what an emotion is, how we become dominated by it, how we can become free even within within the the experience of it. So here are a few tips. Um, It's helpful often to name the emotion. This um, is said to engage the, I think, the frontal cortex of the brain. It engages a part of the brain that can actually be reflective about what's happening. And it's said and it only works if you get the exact right name. Um, so you, And you can feel it, right? You're like, "This, this," and then you're like, "Ah, oh, that, right?" And if you don't know what the emotion is, it can be confusion or uncertainty. Whatever's true, you don't have to go anywhere but with what's right, true in your experience. And then with emotions, we, we attempt um, to feel them if there is any corresponding physical sensation we ground in the body. That's the easiest way to be with an emotion mindfully is to feel where in the body do you feel that emotion and to hold that to hold those sensations or that experience. We can also notice what happens in the mind when an emotion is present. So we feel it in the body, and then we can notice kind of the texture of the mind. Is the mind uh, contracted or spacious? Is the mind um, tight or relaxed? Flexible, inflexible? foggy, clear. Uh, So you can kind of notice the texture of the mind. And you can notice the kinds of thoughts that come up with the emotion. Sometimes noticing the kinds of thoughts just helps us understand. For example, maybe with anger there's thoughts of revenge or self-righteousness. Or with happiness, sometimes there's thoughts of how you're going to be happy the rest of your life. It's wild, right? When you're in an emotion, you can actually believe it's going to last the rest of your life when you're lost in an emotion. You've, you've all had that experience, right? You're happy and you think you're never going to not be happy again. No, you haven't had it? <laughs> it's delusion, <laughs> so if you haven't had it, that's okay, too. How about you're afraid and you think you're never going to not be afraid again in your entire life? You know, it's It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy what we believe when we're lost. So you can notice the kinds of um, stories. We aren't so interested in the particular story. We're not so interested in, oh, he did this and she did that, and so I'm going to get him for that. They, they didn't, you know. We're not so interested in, in the, the particular story. We're interested in the process of an emotion. And how we can meet it and hold it. So, so the trick and the and the challenge is right, because an emotion you're trying to see what's happening in the mind, and usually if it's a strong emotion, it, it grabs you again. But at some moment you wake up again and then you can say, Oh, how do I experience this in the body? And you can come to the body. And then as you're with this, so you're with the motion, you feel it in the body, you notice what happens in the mind, you named it perhaps if you can. How does it change? What happens as you're with it? Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it go away? Does it change? Sometimes you'll think that anger is what's happening. You're with anger for a while and then you'll be like, oh, it's hurt. So sometimes it's like peeling an onion, go down the layers. And then really important is, how are we relating to this emotion? Is there a willingness to show up for it? Or is there some form of reactivity? If it's pleasant, are we trying to keep it, holding on? If it's unpleasant, are we trying to get rid of it? So basically, are we trying to control it? You know with pleasant emotions, the control comes out in the form of, "How can I make this stay and not go away?" With unpleasant emotions, the control comes out in the form of, "How can I get rid of this?" That's most likely going to be your experience as one of those. So that's not bad. Don't take it as bad, but it's the investigation. And so then you're like, oh, so it's pleasant. Like, how can you, you are you have like, you're concentrated, right? And it's like cruising along. It's like, and then this little nagging fear will go, I don't want this to end. How can I make it stay, right? And then you go, oh, okay, that's attachment. You notice it. What happens when you notice it? Maybe that's enough and it just goes, sh- If emotions are very intense, we have to learn how to, um, the most important thing to learn first is how to get out of them. So that actually is the precursor. If the emotion comes and it just overwhelms us, there's, no, there's not much perspective, not much ability to be with it. Um, our job is to learn how to get out of there. I'll give an example from my own life. Um, Early in my practice, I worked a lot, well, not early, for the first 10 years. (laughs) I worked a lot with um, a a kind of terror. I called it the black hole. It was a kind of fear. Um, What it felt like was kind of a dissociated fear, like I I couldn't find much body sensation, but kind of like being in outer space and like nobody was going to save me, kind of spinning in outer space kind of fear. I called it the black hole. And um, it was very intense. It, 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 in, when I first started noticing it or working with it, um, actually before I meditated, I wasn't so aware of it because I had anxiety was actually covering it. So I, was, I came into my adult life really wound really, really tight, lots of anxiety. You know, but as I meditated, I started to understand what was going on, and so it was, oh, this kind of fear. So at first when it would come up, and this wasn't only on the cushion, this was in my daily life too, I'd be like, oh, it's the black hole, how do I get out of here? And I had my ways, I had my list of things to do to, to pull myself out of that experience, because I, I just didn't have any perspective. After I trusted that I knew how to pull out of that experience, I started to get interested in it. Actually, that allows the interest. If you know you can save yourself, you're more likely to be interested. So I started to think, hmm, what is this? So I would find myself in the black hole, and I'd be like, huh, not much body sensation, black, the thought of like nobody's going to save me just way too large blackness. And I started to be able to stay there, um, mindfully. Be like, okay, this is this experience. I started to not be afraid of that experience. So I got more and more um, comfortable with that experience and um, not afraid of it. So then I remember one day I was sitting there And I started to see the black hole coming. I could see it coming. (laughs) It was coming, and I was like... And my attitude was like, oh, my old friend, how are you? (laughs) And it was like the black hole was like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It was like, hmm. And it it couldn't find any place to land. And then over years, it's like, um, then... I just, that experience started happening less. And it wasn't because I tried to get rid of it. It was because I befriended it. And by befriending it, it lost its power over me. When we hate it, try to get rid of it, fight with it, are afraid of it, 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 there's, it, it dominates us, right? But um, I was no longer afraid. And then at one point, I got really interested in all the different kinds of fear. Was, fear was my big emotion for many years in practice. I was just like what I was working with. Uh, I got really interested. So at one point, I, I made a list of all the kinds of fear that I experienced in practice. And my first list had 13 kinds. And it got up to about 24 by the time I um, left, left that uh, list. And then later... Um, I started to experience a lot of anger in my practice, so then I made a list of anger, and I came up with 24 interesting, 24 kinds of anger that I experienced in practice. You want to hear some of them? Yeah. <laughs> Killer rage. You know that one? Homicidal rage. Uh, bulldozer anger. That one's interesting. That's like, <sighs> I'm going to just go right through things. Fury. Anger about something, seething anger, simmering anger, attacking anger, entitled anger, defensive anger, judgment, passive-aggressive anger, powerless anger, collapsing anger frustration, bitterness, resentment. There's a few more. Hopeless anger. This is a human life. So I made friends with all of those. <laughs> a few years ago, or a couple years ago, I was teaching. Um, I teach every year at a Retreat in Spanish in California. And afterwards, um, I was saying goodbye to people and. um In that retreat, we were more, it's more affectionate, you should say. And so, you know, I was saying goodbye to one man in in the Latino way, and he kind of whispered in my ear, he said, I'm up to 48. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you go. (laughs) It's, it's, um, and again, the content isn't so um, important, but for me, like making the list was, it's like a deep acknowledgement that that's part of a human life, and that I'm human. And and there's something also about that to me that I don't take it so personally. If I took this personally, I wouldn't read the list to you. I wouldn't want you to know about it. But this this isn't me. It's my experience. It arises in this mind, body, heart. I'm responsible for dealing with it when it arises. That's all true. And it's my responsibility to learn how to not act out of anger and, and all of that. But it, it isn't me. It doesn't define me. It's something that arises. It's an event that arises out of causes and conditions, lives its life, and ends. So we start to understand that. In group today, um, a question that came up was what to do with all the emotion that many are feeling right now about the state of the world, the state of our country, the, the, the police shootings, the um, political turmoil. The mass um, shootings—all of that—that that seems to be happening quite regularly, right? And um, and the emotions around it can be so intense. What do we do about that? Was the question. After um, Orlando, a, a few days or a week later, I was talking to one of my students who is a lesbian, and she, um, she was like, Rebecca, I'm, I, you know, I'm working hard here she's i feel kind of shut down and and a lot of fear comes up for me after after what happened and uh it's interesting because she's a very experienced student but she's like what should i do it's funny when fear is so strong right we forget what to do and i'm like um how about if we turn towards it she's like okay so i sat with her um it was a phone interview so i sat with her as she just kind of went through these layers of of emotion. So there was fear, anger, disappointment, grief. And she just allowed this process to happen, and I just witnessed it. And and we let it take its own path and its own time. And then after um, some period of time, she was like, Okay, I feel clear now. She goes, "Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> you know so 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 there's a way that um, this witnessing quality allows um, us to meet strong emotions and to let them live their life and to feel the layers. And I, And I was thinking afterwards, mindfulness can be like a good friend. Mindfulness can be like a witness, can witness like a good friend witnesses for us. Mindfulness can be like the friend who accompanies us when we're feeling um, something strong. And like a good friend, mindfulness can bring the quality of kindness and compassion and care to our exploration. So in the afternoon, we've been learning about metta, right? That quality of kindness. We like, we want to infuse mindfulness with that quality. It's a part of mindfulness, is that quality of kindness. And when kindness meets suffering, that quality has a flavor of compassion, of care. And so we learn to care for ourselves. Our mindfulness cares for us. And sometimes when emotions are really strong, I say if mindfulness doesn't cut it, try compassion. Try caring. Try caring about the intensity that is happening in your heart, and your mind, and your body. And often that quality of compassion can make the unbearable bearable. It takes, all the, it takes the sharp edges off and makes it um, us able to hold it. And lastly, just like a good friend, mindfulness has wisdom in it and knows what to do to take care of us. So if our emotions are overwhelming and we're going like that, down, right, Mindfulness reminds us, oh, it's time to, just like a good friend would say, all right, um, come on back, I'm here with you, let's go get a glass of water. the the good friend would help us uh, if we're going too deep into the emotions in a way that's just not helpful. they, They help us come back, right? Mindfulness can do the same thing. And we learn how to balance. We learn how to perhaps go into emotion for a short period and then come out. That's that's another piece of the black hole I forgot to mention. I, first, I just dipped in there. I put my big toe in. <laughs> I would dip in the black hole and then I would like, okay, that's enough. Just a little dip and out because I didn't have the strength to be in there a long time because I'd get lost. But I did have the strength to dip my big toe in. So we can dip our big toe in and then we can um, go out. We learn how to pace ourselves. Sometimes we want to well, be careful. If, you're, if there's a strong emotion and you find like you want to go all the way into the deepest core of it, ask yourself what your motivation is. Because often if we want to like blast into an emotion, often our motivation is we want to get rid of it. And it doesn't work. And it's a little bit violent towards yourself. So if that's your motivation, back up. Give it, give it all some space. But if the motivation is, I want to learn how to be a friend to this experience, then, then you can explore a little bit. All right, it's getting late. I mostly talked about afflictive emotions today. But um, pleasant emotions, it's the same, same thing name it how do you feel it in the body what's happening in the mind how does it change what's the relationship to it is there grasping trying to hold on or are we with it just as it is knowing that it will end as all experiences do I think that's enough for today. So with this process, what happens, what develops is, um, again, as I mentioned in the the question and answer period, um, we begin to develop faith in ourselves and faith in the capacity of our heart um, and mind to be open to life that aliveness of life, that crazy wildness of life. Have you noticed life is wild? And through this process of understanding thought, understanding emotion, knowing how to be with it with mindfulness, um, it's actually what allows our hearts to open and what allows us to feel uh, deep joy, back to that quote at the beginning about feeling love and joy. It allows us to feel love and deep joy in life. Life is a package deal. If we know how to befriend the the challenging emotions, then we also get the joy. They come together. And we see that when we um, can open to our own um, afflictive emotions, our own suffering, that that softens our heart so that we're more able to connect with others. And we're more able to be engaged in this world. Again, the open heart, the heart's more open. And we're more able to, to offer our compassion and our wisdom Um, not just to ourselves, but to others and to this world. So let's just sit for a minute. You don't even have to move. You can, but you you can just sit.